Welcome to Insight, the podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. Having gone several chapters into 2 Kings, we've seen very little about kings and a great deal about the prophet Elisha. Yet we get the impression that what we read is only the tip of the iceberg of the works of that man of God. And in contrast to Elijah, most of those works seem to be directed not toward the kingdom, but toward private individuals. With so much attention given to Elisha's ministry, and especially to the people, What is the writer of Kings trying to tell us? I think we're beginning to see a pattern here, but let's see how it looks after we listen to this episode. Good news for desperate times. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're in the midst of stories of Elisha. These are the days of Elisha. Yeah, we had Elijah. You know, the interesting thing, the days of Elisha, we have seen there is a great deal of analogy, a great deal of similarity between the days of Elisha and the days of Yeshua. Jesus. And what does Elisha's name mean? Do you remember? My God saves. My God saves. That's his name and that's his ministry. It is a ministry of judgment as carried on from Elijah. But it is also a ministry of salvation. And although it's not the specific meaning of what he asked for. Remember he asked for uh, Elijah before he went up into heaven a double portion of his spirit. Of course, the meaning of that has to do with, I want to take your place. I want to be as your firstborn. I want to be your heir. I want to take your place. But it's curious, and I think the irony is in there deliberately on the part of the writer of Kings, that there are twice as many works of Elijah that are of Elisha that are recorded than are recorded of Elijah. I don't think it's that Elisha did twice as many. I think that there is a purpose for recording the works of Elisha more than the works of Elijah. Even though Elijah, in terms of their prominence in the Old Testament, Elijah, of course, has the prominence place. And yet Elisha's ministry is just absolutely amazing. And we continue in this. These are the things that you will not find in the official histories of the kings of Israel. The things that we're going to be seeing today, these are not the things that you will find in the official record. You will only find them in the account of the prophets. The prophets remember these things. Kings sometimes don't want to remember these things. So prophets are the ones who keep the minutes of what's going on in the kingdom of heaven. So, Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place we we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let's go to the Jordan. Each of us get a log there and make a place for us to dwell there. He answered, Go. So what are they doing? Cooperative building program. 
Everybody gets something. Everybody brings a piece. Everybody, everybody. When it says everybody brings a log, I don't think that that's a literal thing. I think that that means we'll, we'll just get together and we'll put this thing together ourselves. We don't need to hire somebody. We'll just, we'll just cooperate together, build this thing ourselves. Okay? And Elisha, Elisha says, do it. So then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. Would you come? We want you to be part of this. Stay with us. So Elisha says, so long as I don't have to hold a hammer, I'm fine. So, um, so he went with them, and they came to the Jordan with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, my master was borrowed. Okay. Now, this, this is tough. This is tough in a lot of ways. Understand something. Iron is iron's not like it was like it is now. Iron is fairly cheap and, and commonplace today. Iron was rare in those days. Remember, there was a time when the Philistines had a monopoly on the iron industry. Well, it's not quite that tight now, but iron was tough to come by, and so an iron axe head is worth a lot of money. An iron axe head is a, is a high bit of capital. And this guy had borrowed his axe. And the axe head flies into the river. You don't understand what this means? On a seminary student's salary? He's going to jail. He's, well, yeah, he's, he's going into slavery. He's going to work this debt off and he will work the rest of his life to pay for that axe head. That's what it means. And he's in trouble. Now, Elisha is a prophet. Now, you know prophets. Prophets don't give a lot of ground, right? You know, prophets are, are more along the lines of, you screw up, right? That's kind of what, you know, the impression that we get sometimes from the prophets. Prophets. Prophets are critics. Prophets tell you what you did wrong. He goes to Elisha. He says, Alas, my master, I have the axe head fell in the water. I can't. Some, some of the other sons of the prophets might have said, Dude, you're in trouble. You can go in. You can, you can jump in the river and see if you can find it. You'll never get it. It's, it's gone. It's gone into the sand. It's buried. It's... Archaeologists will uncover it thousands of years from now. But you won't find it. Elisha is not of that mentality. What does Elisha's name mean? My God saves. And in this case, he even saves the skin of a young seminary student. Look at it. Thus the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, threw it in there, and made the iron float. How did he do that? You are missing the point. How did that work? You are missing the point. The throwing of the stick in, that was a sign. What made that axe head float? Because iron don't float. Iron doesn't float real well. I don't know if y'all have noticed. Iron doesn't float real well. Whatever it was that brought that iron up, it was not the power. 
of man. And it was not the power of nature. The axe head float and he said, take it up. <laughs> now, now that's what's interesting. Everybody's standing around there and they're seeing this. And then the axe head is floating and everybody's standing there. So Elisha has to tell him, pick it up. Is there a need in your life that is too trivial for God to get involved in? Is there a need in the kingdom of God that is too trivial for God to get involved in? Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. Now, a very different story. See, now, I mean, that's just, that's just... Think about the fact of all the stories that the writer of Kings might have chosen to tell about Elisha. He puts that one in there. And he puts that in there right after the story of the healing of Naaman and right before this story. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel. And we don't have this, a specific chronology of this. So it's not necessarily like one thing takes place after the other. I don't know that we can actually chart out, okay, all of this happened after this. This may have taken place. These things, what we're about to see here, may have taken place after the issue of Syria and the Naaman, or it might have taken place even before. That's not because the writer of Kings is not concerned right now to give us a strict chronology of the life and ministry of Elisha, but to group together things that took place. Now, the, so the king of Syria was more, this is one of those times you've got this flare-up, calm-down situation between Syria and Israel. This is one of those times. King of Syria decides, well, I'm, I've had enough of these descendants of Amri, so I'm, I'm going to just go in there and take what I feel like belongs to me. So he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place will be my camp. But the man of God said... Now, notice this is also... A, a lot of things are going on here that are passed along in detail. And yet, detail without detail. There is something... There is a specific reason. See if you can spot it. There is a specific reason why the writer of Kings is telling us. The king of Syria says to his counselors, Well, I'm going to go to such and such a spot. I want us to send our men to such and such a spot. Our armies are going to go here. We're going to attack here. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. It's an interesting, vague yet specific Designation. This became something almost of a routine. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, <laughs> you think? And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us was for the king of Israel? I, I would not have wanted to be in that meeting. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now there's an alarming thought. 
And he said to him, Go and see where he is, that I might send and seize him. So it was told him, Behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now Dothan is not an armed city. Dothan is not a fortified city. Dothan is just a town out there. And so here, the king of Syria sends not not a team of police, not a SWAT team. He sends an entire regiment to come and surround this town, take the town in order to take Elisha. That's how much he considers it. He, this, the security leak is too bad and considering that Elisha, who is somehow getting these words from some source, he's got to be stopped. So he sends an entire regiment out surrounding the city. Horses, and chariots, and infantry. And they are ready to attack. They show up and they're very good. They set their plan and somehow manages to escape the notice of the all-seeing, all-knowing prophet, it seems. And they manage to surround, they manage to set a, a trap. They manage to set a surprise. And when the servant of the man of God rose, notice it does not name the servant. That's interesting. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, those words sound so calm. Do you think that servant said those, Alas, my master, what shall we do? No. Well, he may have been at the axe floating. He, he may have been at the axe floating. You know, I, I think we've understood, and also we notice, we look at the disciples of Jesus. How many miracles did they see? And yet something comes up and says, Nothing like this has happened before. We're all in trouble. We're all doomed. You know, I mean, that's, and that's the way we are. We never take the word that we have received before. We never think of issues that have happened before. We, it never occurs to us that God is not surprised by all of this. But it occurs to Elisha that God is not surprised by all of this. And Elisha, <laughs> Elisha says, no, 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 don't be afraid. Those who are with, are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, it doesn't say so. But the next verse indicates that this, this guy is just looking like Elisha, like, you really are crazy. So Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, behold, the mountains were filled with horses and chariots of fire. And notice it doesn't say around about the city. They were around about Elisha. They were there because Elisha was there. And where Elisha was, by the will of God, that's where the kingdom of God was right now. Very much as with Jesus, where Jesus was and where Jesus is, that's where the kingdom of God is. Right now, where, where Elisha is, that's where the kingdom of God is.
and the horses are full, the mountains are full of horses and chariots of fire around about Elisha. Now here's the deal. Elisha's been saying that Elisha doesn't have to have his eye. Elisha knows about all this. But the young man who's with him, who's training, says, Lord, open his eyes. Let him see. The man hasn't learned how to see with the eyes of faith. And so Elisha's prayer gives him a boost. And when Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please, strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now the blindness that he struck them them with, as you will be able to see in the story, is not direct blindness in which the eyes go black and can see nothing. How do we know that? Because we've got an entire regiment marching in an orderly way from this place to another place. That's not going to happen if there is literal physical blindness going on. He struck, him, they, he struck them with blindness in the same way that he opened the young man's eyes to see things that the young man was not able to see. So now the blindness is put upon them so that they are unable to see things that they previously could see. Notice the distinction there. Notice the play on this. All of this is about what can you see and what do you see. And at this point, it's kind of like, you know, we, having, gone, having seen the Star Wars trilogy, you know, we could think of a Jedi mind trick. You know, this is no mind trick. This is the act of God. This is the power of God. This is not the force. This is the power of God. This is the power of the living God not an impersonal force. And God strikes them blind so that Elisha walks right out there and they know, they know who Elisha is and they don't recognize him. They don't see who he is. Just as Jesus, after his resurrection, walked with two of his disciples who had walked with him for years, and he was walking with them for two miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and walked with them, and they did not recognize them because their eyes were blinded and they couldn't see him. Elisha walks with them, and they can't see him. And he looks at them and says, Oh no, you you came to the wrong city came to the wrong town. Come with me. I'll show you where he is. And they're, okay. <laughs> horror, horror. And they follow him. Okay. And so Elisha's there. You know, this, this little bald-headed man is leading this regiment, you know, just from Dothan to Samaria. They go and this regiment is absolutely oblivious to the fact that they are getting ready to walk into the city, the capital city of Israel, the walled city of Samaria. It doesn't occur to them until after they are inside, after the doors close behind them, and Elisha prays. Oh, Lord, open the eyes of these men, this is verse 20, that they may see. Have we heard that prayer before? Same prayer he prayed for the young man. He said, Lord, let him see now. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold they were in the middle of Samaria. Okay, now we are in trouble. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, 
he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He said, If you had captured them with your own sword and bow, would you kill them? No. And you didn't capture them. The Lord brought them to your lap. Tell you what to do. Let's feed them. So they prepared a great feast for them. Fed this regiment that had come to arrest Elisha at the instigation of Elisha. Love your enemy. Do, the, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Do not return evil for evil, but return, but respond to evil with good. This is what Elisha is doing right now. He is anticipating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who changes lives. So they feed them, they let them go. This becomes a platform for other things that are to happen later. I think that this is a... Well, I won't get into all that. Let's just go on. And the Assyrians did not come on raids again into the land of Israel for a while for a while yeah afterward Ben-Hadad king of Syria mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Syria okay so this is after a time now we're going to find out something here matter of fact let's go ahead and jump ahead to something Jump ahead to chapter 8. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise, depart with your household, sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. So... This is one of those things, one of those indications that we're not given a strictly chronological account of everything. Remember back when, the, when Elisha was living uh, and, or coming by and staying with the Shunammite woman? This is the woman whose uh, son came as the result of a promise, a prayer and promise given by Elisha. And this was the woman whose son was raised from the dead by the prayer of Elisha. Remember? All of that took place. He told her... You're going to need to leave here and go someplace else for the next seven years because there's not going to be a bite of food for you, for you to buy. It doesn't matter. All the wealth you have is not going to be able to pay for, the, for this famine. You need to leave here for a while. Take your family. Leave. Okay? All of this is, much of this is taking place during that seven-year famine. Apparently, toward the end of that famine, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army, went up and besieged Samaria, and there was a great famine in Syria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Okay, what are they eating, buying the donkey's head for? Food. Okay, you do understand a donkey is an unclean animal. So they, and... But previously, they might be selling the donkey's dung. Now, why would they be selling dung? So for fuel. 
Okay, how inflated are the prices here? You can get a donkey's head for what you, what you used to be able to buy a house for. And you can buy about a half quart of dove's dung to do your cooking with, to light a fire for, oh, about two or three months' wages. Serious, serious famine. This is the time at the end of this famine because the land is already distressed. It's already exhausted. And at this time, Syria decides this is the time to conquer Samaria. They are weak. They will crumble. They will fall. Because we've got a supply line and they don't have anything even in their storehouses. So they don't have to besiege it for very long before everything is severely tested. Verse, how, how severe was the famine in Samaria? Verse 26, now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him from down on the ground, Help my lord, O king. He said, If the Lord won't help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? In other words, sarcastic comment. There's nothing in the threshing floor, there's nothing in the wine press. King asked her, Okay, what's your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. On the next day I said to her, Give her give your son that we may eat him, but he's hidden her son. She's hidden her son. Appalling, isn't it? And the king was appalled, and he tore his clothes. And he's passing by on the wall, and people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me and more if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now, what's the story of all of that? Okay, he's wearing sackcloth beneath his garments. What does that mean? Okay, he's in mourning. And particularly sackcloth, and that indicates fast. Who, who did that? Oh, why, why did people do that? That was a sign of getting serious before God. Why does he decide, I'm going to kill Elisha. I'm going to find him. I'm going to arrest him. I'm going to take him, bring him in, and I'm going to, I'm going to take his head off. Why? He's angry at God. He's angry at God. Here's the deal. This king has been trying to do it Elisha's way. He's been trying... He's been trying. Don't you know? He's, don't you understand? He's been trying to get a hold of God. He's been trying this prayer thing. He's been trying this faith in the one God thing. He's given it a go. And where has God left him? My own people are devouring their babies. And he's furious. Not with the idolatry that brought this judgment upon them. He is furious with the God who has not answered his prayer yet. And he is furious with the prophet who has caused him to think that this is a God who can be trusted. That this is a God who can be believed in. He is bitter toward this God. And I'm going to kill Elisha today. I swear to the God that he serves. 
that's where he is. Do you understand that? This is someone who has tried the God thing and has decided now it's not worth it. I'm going to do this my own way from here on out. Do you know those people? Have you been there? There are a couple of spiritual disciplines, maybe two really spiritual disciplines. One of them is forgiveness. The other one is waiting. Can you really wait long enough? Can you really wait for God? How long can you wait? So, they send, he sends someone, says, I'm going, to rest, I'm going to do it myself, and he sends a messenger ahead of him. Who's the, who's the king? The king is apparently Jehoram. Joram. But that's an interesting thing, Rich. The king is not named here. I'm not going to speculate right now as to the reasons because that might get us in the things that would get us off the story. Right now, let's go on. Let's go ahead. Verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house. The elders were sitting with him. Now, these are not the sons of the prophet. These are the elders of the city. They're sitting with Elisha. So this is an indication the whole city has taken this occasion of the siege to try to get serious with God. And the king himself has, has done this God thing and he's, he's wearing sackcloth and under his kingly garments and all of that. He's too proud to show off the sackcloth, but when they, he, he tears his clothes, everybody can see, wow, the king's wearing sackcloth. But then he comes up and he curses the prophet and says, I'm going to get this guy. So what does that mean? Does it, I mean, that's telling the city, well, I guess God's just going to be against, you know, the God of Israel is going to be against us now anyway. And Elisha's with his, in the house with the elders, and the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, See how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Isn't the sound of his master's feet behind him? Well, while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel in the gate at the gate of Samaria. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Uh, when it says all of that, that's a large amount of flour. That's a large amount of barley. That's a household for a week. And those are... Let's, let's just say those are better than rollback prices. <laughs> So, and then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, you shall not eat of it. By the way, I'll, I'll try to point it out to you. There are, some, there are puns all the way through this. Writer of Kings is, is good at what he does. And the very, you know, the more I look at Kings, the more the thought that this book was written by a committee, it just strikes me as just being silly. The structure of this whole story, 
do you realize the structure of this whole story is absolutely parallel and, and mirror fashion to the structure of the stories uh, of the that we were reading in the previous chapter. They, these chapters kind of like accordion and then come out. They just the way that the narrative runs, it is extremely finely crafted. This writer knows what he's doing. So the captain says, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, oh, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat of it. Okay. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. Now here's, here's one of the puns. First of all, the word four is a pun with the word windows. The word four and the word windows sound very close to being one, like one another. Okay. Four men who were lepers. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let's enter the city, the famines in the city will die there. And if we die, if we sit here, we die. So let's go to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we'll live. If they kill us, we'll die. <laughs> so, you know, just it's this glorious fatalism of somebody who doesn't have anything left to lose, you know. So. They arose at twilight, went to the camp of the Syrians. If they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, there was no one there. Why was there nobody there? Because the Syria, yeah. Are we to assume that in this particular case, we really mean leprosy as we know it today? Lepers as, as in the biblical sense, not in the sense of Hansen's disease, but in the sense so of... why were they in trouble of dying if that's all they had? Well, because they were... You're going to starve to death. Okay. They were going to starve to death. Like everybody in the city, they're going to starve to death. If, if they, and they're not going to let them in the city because they're lepers. Because of their skin. Because of their, yeah, because of their disease. So people in there aren't going to feed us. If we go in there, they'll kill us just for going in there. And if, even if they didn't kill us, we'll starve to death if we go in that city. If we stay out here, nobody's going to send us any food. We're going to starve to death. If we go to the Syrian camp, they may kill us, but they might feed us. So, you know, what have we got to lose? Best chance going that way. And they went that way. There was nobody in the camp. The Syrians got spooked. What spooked them? They got spooked and they lifted the siege and got out of there quick. How quick? They left everything there. They didn't pack up. They thought they were being attacked. The scripture says that the Lord caused them to hear the sound of an approaching large army. And they decided, well, this is, the Syri this is the Hittites or this is the Egyptians. The king of Israel has hired somebody to come and attack us. But they're, they're coming. They heard chariots. They heard horses. They heard the sound of infantry tramping. They heard, you know, just the, the sounds of an army gathering. To, that's what they heard. Another Jedi mind trick. Yeah, and it happened to the whole army. The commanders, the kings and the commanders of the Syrian army says, let's get out of here, let's get out of here now before we're surrounded. 
and they left everything. They left the whole camp intact. They left all of their food, all of their supplies. They left the wealth that they had gained. They left their plunder that they had gotten on their way to that spot. They left every. They left it there and just got out as quick as they could. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned. And when, in verse 8, when the lepers came into the edge of the camp, they went to a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. I mean, you can just see that, you know, this, this is a, a hilarious story, really. I mean, you can just see that, you know, these guys say, well, this, and so they go and they, they collect all this stuff. And they, they do this pretty much all day. Then they said to one another, you know, this really isn't right. <laughs> I mean, inside there, there, this is a day of good news. This is a day of good news. This is a day of the gospel. Same word. The Hebrew version of the same word. This is the word gospel. If we're silent and we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. It's bad karma, dude. <laughs> Besides, somebody's going to hurt us. They're not going to appreciate, you know, this. So, notice, they had been doing this all day long, obviously, because now it's starting to get dark. And so, they, they think, you know, we better not wait until morning to go and tell everybody about this. So, they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we, we came to the camp of the Syrians and, oh, there's no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And then the gatekeepers called out and it was told the king's household and the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we're hungry. So they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country thinking when they come out of the city we'll take them alive and get into the city. Uh, you know, Joshua used kind of a similar strategy to conquer Ai. You know, lure them out of the city, get them out of there. And it wouldn't be a bad strategy except that's not what happened. So the king, uh, one of his servants said, well, let's take, uh, let's take a few <coughs> men, send them out. Uh, if we lose a few men, then, you know, they're expendable. But uh, let's send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent after them in the army of Syria, saying, go and see. And they went after them as far as the Jordan. As far as the Jordan, and behold, all, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. And then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. <laughs> Stampede! So a seah of fine flour was sold by a, for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. And now the king had appointed the captain on whom his hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate. <laughs> okay, you be in charge of running the gate. The people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For the man of God, just to make sure that we didn't miss that, the writer of Kings is repeating that little story. Say, so you remember the man of God said to him, Two seas of barley shall be sold for a shekel to see a fine flower for a shekel about this time tomorrow. And the captain had answered the man of God, The Lord himself should make windows in heaven, should such a thing be. And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. He saw it. He didn't get to eat it. Now Elisha had said to the woman, Okay, we went back to that story then. Chapter 8. Elisha said to the woman, 
go live somewhere else for seven years. That's how long the family... By the way, seven years, that takes us to a Sabbath year. We are in a Sabbath year now. God gets back His Sabbaths is the part of the point that He's trying to make. And He is measuring out the discipline. He is measuring out. The people have brought judgment upon themselves through their persistent and growing idolatry. And God has brought judgment. And He has brought discipline. And the discipline has hit everybody and yet God has protected certain ones. So that they're not hurt by the fire. They're not destroyed by the famine. And so he sends the word back. They go, go, he shields this group in Philistia. Land of the Philistines, there's no famine in Philistia. So she returns at the end of the seven years. What happens to the woman's land while she's gone? What happens to the family land? Especially, now, earlier there was a mention she had a husband. We're told of her husband. We're not told anything about a husband now. Either she was a widow before she left or she's a widow coming back. It's kind of like Ruth and Naomi's situation. What happens to the land while they're gone? It used to be in the old days it would revert back to the family. In these days of the modern king of Israel, we've got the precedent set the land reverts to the king. So they go back. She's come to Syria to appeal for her land to the king. Now, this just happens to take place. Just happens. Now the king was talking, verse 4. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. My belief is that this event took place before the healing of Naaman and before Gehazi was stricken with leprosy. It's not necessarily so. It's possible that the Gehazi that he was talking to is now the leprous Gehazi who's coming back and reflecting back to the king. But I don't see that. Um, And one of the things that I see there is that Gehazi is presented as being currently, contemporarily, the servant of Elisha. So he's talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. So Gehazi is is relating to the king all of these things. Now this is after the famine, after the deliverance and all of this. And right now, the king, who not too long before was wanting to lift Elisha's head off of his shoulders, is now saying, I want to hear about this guy. I want to know more about this guy. His mood has changed. He's feeling pretty mellow about Elisha right now. So he's getting Gehazi to tell him all of his war stories, you know, all of the stories about the different things that Elisha's done. And uh, while he was telling the king, this is verse 5, while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and the land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here's the woman and here's her son whom Elisha restored to life. Just happens to come in at that moment. What do you know? What do you know? 
And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, don't just restore her land. Pay her for the time. The only kingly thing that this king ever did, and he did under the influence of Elisha. And Elisha's not even there. Power of a man of God, the power of a man of faith, the power of a man who is willing to give his life totally to God so that God will use him as he wishes to use him. Notice that Elisha is not even named here. Did you notice that? After the first, while he was telling the king how Elisha had son, and said, uh, but how many times, I mean, Elisha, his name is named a couple of times, but he's also just simply called the man of God. And before we're through with the story, Elisha won't have an identity of his own. He'll simply be the man of God. You're willing to pay that price in order to be... What if you were known just as a Christian? Would that be all right? What if people stopped calling you by your name and just called you, well, that's the Christian? Would that be okay? Gee, I'd wanted to finish chapter 8 today, but we're just not going to do it. But it's actually... There's too much into it to finish anyway, so let's just go and take it from here. We continue to see in the story of Elisha ironies and twists and a great spiritual battle that only spiritual eyes can see. But even more, we're seeing how through Elisha, God is showing his covenant love and mercy to a people who are disobedient to his covenant. But next time, we are going to see how the ministry of the prophet intersects the political intrigues of his day, revealing that God is sovereign even over that. You've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.